1: crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the Kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened.
0: Sharing the gospel in new places is a bit of an art. There are a lot of decisions that go into it. How do you share? Who do you share with? At what moments? And using what words? It takes the leading of the spirit and a lot of discernment to navigate these tough choices. And for the region of Eastern South Asia, the way these questions were answered shaped everything about the way the gospel reached people. Today we head to an area where religions clash and words can either make or break movements. You're listening to Maverick, and this is Eastern South Asia.
1: put it in your mind, we're talking, uh, the the epicenter is Bangladesh. And just to the west of that, uh, we would include the whole uh, eastern half of India. And then if you move across on the other side of Bangladesh, you get those western states of southern Myanmar, southern Burma, that are oriented uh, back toward the Bay of Bengal. And that area together is one of the most densely populated places on earth. This is a very vibrant part of the world. People with quick smiles, delicious, spicy food, whether it's halal Islamic food or vegetarian Hindu food, uh, both are good and both are generously spiced in ways that you will remember long after you've eaten that food. Eastern South Asia is a room that's been undergoing change for uh, the better part of the last century. And part of that change is an awareness of who Jesus is and the claim that he has on the lives of people across that room.
0: And before we dive into all that God is doing among Muslims in Eastern South Asia, we need to understand the context a bit. There are basically three major religions in the region, tribalism, Hinduism, and Islam. And when missionaries began work in the region, it quickly became a choice of which of those three people groups they would go after first. And for one missionary in particular, that choice would determine how and when the gospel would reach Muslims there.
1: William Carey, he casts a big shadow over much of South Asia, really all over the world because of his tremendous impact as a pioneering missionary. He landed initially in Calcutta, and the British colonizers there didn't like someone stirring the pot. So he went upriver, up the Hooghly River to uh, Serampore, where the Danish colony allowed him to set up shop. And he immediately began his Bible translation work. He thought, how can these people believe if they can't hear God's word in their own language? Uh, Before he passed away, he had translated all or portions of the Bible into 44 different languages, which is just astounding to think about. The first language he chose was the Bangla language, the language of the Bengali people who were all around him.
0: And so when he began translating the Bible to Bangla, he pretty quickly ran into a fork in the road. There were two Bangla words for God that already existed. One was the Sanskrit word for God, which was the background language for the Hindu religion. The other was the Arab word for God, which was the background language for Islam.
1: But as William Carey looked at the options, he had to make a choice, and he chose the word Ishwar. In doing so, he chose a word that was familiar to the Hindu background people, but it was a word that was clearly at odds with the emerging Muslim population. And the result was in the years that followed, people from a Hindu background were more open to hearing and receiving both the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Gospels than people from a Muslim background. And as the Muslim background population grew, they turned a deaf ear to the scriptures that had been translated into uh, Bangla using the name Ishwar for God. And that was very consequential for the future of evangelism in South Asia.
0: And it's not that William Carey made the wrong choice. It's just that he had to make a choice, Hindu word for God or Muslim word for God. And that choice ultimately made the difference between which of these two groups would be more open to the message of the Bible. It's not the only reason why Bangladeshi Muslims have been slow to receive the gospel, but it definitely provides some context Because for decades, the only Bible translation they had access to felt to them like it was a message for Hindus. And for a Muslim in Eastern South Asia, that's a pretty big obstacle. There's very much an us versus them sort of mentality there.
1: There's just deep-seated hostilities between uh, Muslims and these other ethnic backgrounds. There's a saying among some of the tribal people in Bangladesh, they said, if you're walking down a path in the forest, and you come across a poisonous snake and a Muslim. Kill the Muslim first and then kill the poisonous snake.
0: So with that cultural divide, even though the gospel made its way into the region, Muslims remained relatively untouched. Until the 1990s, when a new translation was created in the Bengali language. And this translation was written in a way that spoke directly to the Muslim population. And with that came the opportunity for Muslims to encounter Jesus without a lot of the previous cultural baggage attached.
2: So that came on the scene in 1998, and you can pinpoint when the movements started breaking out, it correlated.
0: This is Kevin Greeson. He was a missionary in Bangladesh right as Muslim movements were emerging there.
2: We arrived in 1994 to the capital city. We spent one year learning the language, and then quickly we shifted out to a very remote part of the uh, country. It had 100,000 people on there, but in Bangladesh, that's a small village.
0: Kevin worked closely with some local believers, and they saw a ton of fruit. Within about five years, they had baptized over 1,000 people. And then he started hearing about other movements cropping up in other parts of the country. But even though he was experiencing a movement firsthand, he didn't want to take these other reports at face value. I was
2: skeptical because this is Bangladesh. You know, people will say anything to get anything. And I did not want to build a movement just to come find out later that they were just smoking mirrors and just telling me what I wanted to hear.
0: And that skepticism led him on a bit of a journey as he went to go see for himself what was going on in these other movements.
2: One old missionary partner of mine introduced me to a young man who had come to Christ. And uh, he was claiming to have 20,000 former Muslims in, in a movement. And so I, I guess you could say I was very skeptical. I wanted to look and ask some questions, but also I wanted to learn. And so he let me into that movement, into the heart of it. I went around asking questions. I would ask them to, because I knew they couldn't fool me if uh, I just said, sing me a song. You guys have been believers here now for what, two to four years? Yeah. I said, "Um, sing me a song. And so I remember one village that I was in, just there were 200 people in that village that were claiming to be followers of Christ and they sang three songs and it was not just one person, the village sang three songs. One was about the story of David and Goliath. Another story was about Jesus standing on the front of the boat and calming the storm. And then the third song they sang was about one of their own who had been martyred. Then I went from house to house and I just wanted to see because they said that they were reading the Bible. Well, I, I just wanted to check. And so I went and uh, I remember walking to 40 plus houses that day and looking inside and talking to the people and seeing a Bible in every one of those uh, houses.
0: Kevin was more and more confident that these movements were real and that God was doing something pretty remarkable in the country. And while that new Bible translation had a lot to do with this gospel momentum, Kevin would say that there were also other factors at play.
2: If I were to quickly run over a list of things, factors, why Bangladesh was so ready for this large-scale movements, uh, it would be missionaries working before I even got there, missionaries plowing soil, while others decided to just work with Hindus and tribals. There were a few that decided to work with Muslims the Bible being translated into Muslim-friendly language, and then our own little discoveries of boldness. Uh, All of that together was what led to this large, large breakout of Muslims coming to faith in Christ in Bangladesh.
0: And it's that last thing in his list, boldness, that comes to mind when Kevin talks about a man named Shamir. Shamir was a local believer with a lot of gumption, In just one year, he led 300 Bangladeshi Muslims to Christ. So the following year, Kevin asked Shamir to head to another village and share the gospel there. Shamir agreed and took another local believer with him. They packed their bags, found a hotel room in the new village, and went out to talk to people.
2: He found two young Muslim guys and uh, talked to them about the character of Muhammad and about all of his wives and they were shocked and ran immediately to their mosque and told their Imam about that. And uh, soon in the evening time, a crowd, uh, it's like a mob. If you can imagine the uh, an old movie where the people are storming the castle with torches, that's exactly what it looked like. A huge mob mm-hmm. coming at night up to the hotel where the two brothers were and uh, trying to pull them out. And the hotel shut their gates real quickly and, and to protect them.
0: And right when Shamir was about to be overtaken by the crowd, the police showed up and arrested him. Initially, they said they were just taking him in to protect him, but it became pretty obvious that he was going to be in jail for a while.
2: I remember uh, tears coming down my face when I got to visit him, uh, me and about 100 wives are standing on one side of this mesh fence and the prisoners are six feet away behind their fence and we're all yelling at uh, our loved ones and i'm telling shamir as loud as i can don't worry i've got your family i'm getting a lawyer we're going to get you out of here and um, i've never experienced anything like this in my life i'm scared to death what's going to happen here And uh, I looked at him over there and he had the biggest smile on his face. And he said, Kevin, it's okay. I'm okay in here. My discipleship class is going great. Just you do what you need to do. I'm working inside here.
0: So while Shamir started leading inmates to Jesus, Kevin worked to get him released. And eventually he was let out of jail and given a court date.
2: It was a night court, and it's an old British-style court, so they asked him to stand inside the box and to uh, tell his side of the story. Well, he starts sharing the gospel because, you know, he's telling them, that's what I had come to do. The judge immediately uh, called a recess and dismissed everybody. The crowd was actually becoming uh, angry in the court.
0: Shamir went to his hotel for the night, not sure what this would mean for his trial. The next morning he woke up to a knock on the door, and to his surprise, it was the judge.
2: And the judge sits on the edge of the bed and says, finish telling me what you were saying last night. So Shamir tells him, and the judge says, you're going to come to my house. And I'm going to gather my family, and you're going to tell them exactly what you just shared. And of course, it's the gospel is what Shamir shared. That moment was a big breakthrough for us in boldness.
0: And with that new boldness came a new approach. Instead of fearing the powerful people in the community, Kevin and his teammates sent out local pastors to go directly to the leaders. They went to police, magistrates, and whoever else was in charge in each district. And they told them exactly what they wanted to do, share the gospel with the people there. 24
2: magistrates and police were approached and 22 of them had said, yeah, go ahead. We give you permission to do it. And so um, that began a new journey and uh, that's what really led to these movements.
0: David encountered story after story just like this one as he traveled across the region. The faint rumors were proving to be true. But in the midst of all these exciting movements, things aren't exactly straightforward in Eastern South Asia. Because just like William Carey had to make a choice between words and titles, Muslims who decide to follow Jesus find themselves at a similar crossroads. To them the title Christian is affiliated with the church that's made up of former Hindus and tribal people. They don't really have a place to belong in that and they aren't really welcome either. So to call themselves Christian doesn't feel like it fits, but they aren't really Muslim anymore and don't belong in their communities in the way they did before following Jesus. So to call themselves Muslim doesn't fit either. And part of what David hoped to do in his survey was to hear from these different groups and find out how they identify themselves, not just in Eastern South Asia, but throughout the Muslim world, what do they call themselves and what do they mean by it?
1: And I'd get a myriad of answers from them to that question. One group actually called themselves Sahih Muslims, which was literally translated true Muslims. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, these uh, Muslims here in the community, do not they haven't really submitted to the will of God. And that's what Muslim means, to submit to the will of God. They said the only way to really submit to the will of God is to give your life to Jesus. I thought that was fascinating because it was a little bit uh, um, ambiguous initially and they intended it that way. If they had simply said, I'm a Christian, they would have either been outcast from their community or even worse, they would have been stoned or killed or thrown in jail, lost their family, lost their witness. But by saying that they were Sahih Muslims, in this case, the conversation was continued. What do you mean by Sahih or true Muslims? They could use that then as an opportunity to tell people that the only way to be in right relationship with God, fully submitted to God, is by having this relationship with God through Jesus. He was the only righteous one.
0: Another group called themselves Isahi Muslims, which means Muslims who belong to Jesus. They still identified with the community and culture they came from, and in that sense, the word Muslim fit. But they were followers of Jesus and saw themselves as belonging to him.
1: I had another uh, Muslim evangelist. He had been a sheikh, an Islamic kind of elder and now he was leading other sheikhs to faith in Christ. I asked him, I said, what do you call yourself when you go into the community? He says, we call ourselves uh, al al Kitab, which is people of the book. Now that's interesting because uh, people of the book is again, somewhat ambiguous. But from his vantage point, it meant I follow the book, the Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible. But for Muslims, they knew that in their scripture, Muhammad said, good things about people of the book that if they are pious and they fear the judgment and they live a righteous life and they're a people of the book, then they'll be in heaven also someday. So it gave them sort of a pass to be able to survive in a hostile environment, not renounce their faith as followers of Jesus, but continue to have a a communication channel for sharing their faith with a, a hostile Muslim population.
0: It might feel uncomfortable to us here in the West to think about someone following Jesus without calling themselves a Christian. And honestly, there's a lot of controversy and debate behind the whole concept, and I'm not really gonna try to tackle that in this podcast. Because truthfully, when I think about movements in Eastern South Asia, it's hard not to get wrapped up in a game of semantics. Translations can change trajectories. Words can start and end conversations. Titles and affiliations can stir up long histories of hostility and division. Names and labels can mean the difference between conversion or excommunication. But there's an undercurrent below the surface of it all. One word that stands and triumphs. A word that softens hearts and opens eyes and can't be stopped. It's living and active and never returns void. And it's that word that has changed the minds of thousands upon thousands of Muslims in Eastern South Asia. And in the end, that's the only word that really matters. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support The Maverick Podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.